Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. I'm speaking now with John Doyle, who is the Assistant VP of Research and Development at Deutsche Bank. And John, you're presenting this evening on a a very interesting um, study to do with mobile phone data, mobile phone usage, uh, and in particular how it can be used to uh, develop a model of how people, um, I guess, travel their daily routines, that sort of thing. So tell us a little bit more about the project and uh, who you are working with on it. Uh, yeah, so basically the project formulated uh, part of my PhD research into um, large-scale population movements. Um, so the basic research was carried out within a strategic research cluster called Strategy, which is part of a which was headed up in NUI Minute. Um, so I was form I was part of the Callan Institute, which is part of the Electronic Engineering Building, um, in a kind of telecoms-based research. Um, yeah, so that was the primary, I suppose, aspect um, of where the research was carried out. Um, the data set itself was primarily voided by uh, Irish Telecom's operator. Um, sorry, what was the rest of the question? Yeah, just in terms of looking at, um, I guess, when you're dealing with any study that uses big data or very large data sets, there's always a question about, you know, where does this information come from, specifically when you're dealing with a country with a small population like Ireland, where there's it's only 3 million people and there's only so many operators in each field. So when you're looking at um, you know, a telecoms operator um, and not looking specifically mining it for you know, industrial information, more sort of um, uh, data that might come to inform things like you know urban planning or that sort of thing, yeah. it becomes very important to gauge what people actually do. But you might be a member of a data set and actually not know that you're a member of a particular data set. So, what sort of protections are there in place to make sure that either you know you don't have to give your consent that you can't be recognised as an individual? Yeah, no, definitely, it's a, an important question and. <clears throat> There's a lot of EU legislations out there and directives regarding that uh, piece of research. So I know at the time when we were carrying out that research, uh, the, legisla- the legislation and directives were different compared to what they are now. So in kind of today's context, if you're going to carry out that kind of research, you have to carry out media campaigns within, um, say, the country that you're carrying it out with. You have to inform people of you know, proper ethical approval, to um, okay, this is going to be carried out. This is what the data set is going to be used for, um, and then kind of you know have the whole process open to complaints. Um, so we had done this research from a few years ago. Um, I think started it in two thousand and eight, and finished in around two thousand and thirteen. And at that time, the kind of the kind of the whole ethics around doing the research were slightly different from today's environment in terms of. The data itself is used by the mobile phone operators to carry out their functions in terms of delivering calls, delivering, um, I suppose, being able to bill uh, the users. So there was kind of statutory legislation around that in terms of how they saved the data, where it was done, to kind of hold data privacy. Um, there was a lot of research groups kind of around that time then <clears throat> getting kind of specialist access to the data sets to carry out this research. Um, some of the kind of 
use cases for that then in terms of if you think about if you're able to basically observe how large swords or how large uh, cohorts of people are moving between A and B you can do stuff like start to say okay between this town and this town is there actually a need for like new transportation links is there a need for like improved roads um, so you can gauge by the amount of um, traffic going on between two cell towers you can go oh right okay this is say the most people's most favourite shortcut from Dublin to uh, to Kildare that kind of thing a little bit um, <clears throat> it's a little bit more kind of abstracted out than that but in a general sense um, it is possible so I know researchers based in Estonia have done it to actually inform the government where to build new roads and there's actually um, so a lot of time now um, Basidium I think is the name of the company so it's done through uh, Ren Haas Ren Halas kind of a professor in Estonia and they would have done a lot of research with the local governments there to actually plan uh, infrastructure kind of needs based on this type of data set um, another interesting use case of it is like I kind of mentioned if you're looking at where tourists are travelling around the country so be- because it's a mobile phone network people have to register on that network so you know their country of origin because that's where you have the route to call back so as a function, then, you know their probable uh, nationality. And you can also tell that they're roaming. They're not just, like, kind of people living in that area. So then you can say, OK, <clears throat> say, I heard recently, I think the CSO are interested in doing analysis like that. So then you can see, OK, what percentage of French tourists or German tourists or any nationality is spending time at different cell towers, which correlate then to different amenities or different tourist activities. Which, if you were to capture that information normally, is actually quite difficult because then you have to stop and register every tourist who visits an attraction and either find out their nationality or gauge it, which is quite difficult to do. And when you're doing studies like this where you can come up with quite powerful visualisations of people's movement um, throughout the day and and indeed at times of day, so you'll be able to basically pinpoint people's commutes or, you know, uh, any sort of regular activities they they may have. How do you... um, come up with these things to to any yeah the different strategies that you're using and how can you be certain of the level of accuracy of those strategies yeah so there's different techniques um so again a lot of the data is anonymized so you don't actually know the individual and then you can basically track that agent as it moves through space Um, you can do different techniques then to obscure any one individual from a group using like uh, different kind of well-established techniques called canonymity kind of techniques like that so basically they're sampling strategies from populations so that you can't individually identify any single user from that population once it's sampled in the right kind of framework and basically means that you're hiding within a crowd so there's different strategies around that in terms of the accuracy of the data depending on the resolution it's more stochastic rather than 100% accurate so you don't know that it's an individual person down to a pinpoint accuracy as in their mobile device. You know that they've connected to a cell tower at that time. But then even that cell coverage area is stochastic, so it's not defined and it changes with the weather. So you've got to kind of extract away from individual accuracies and say, OK, this person was probably in this region, given my model of how the, the coverage area is for that particular cell. 
and then you're saying, okay, but the way the network is configured, just because you connect to that cell doesn't mean that you're in that location because there's network balancing algorithms that kind of would move you onto another cell depending on... So there's a whole kind of, I suppose, probabilistic approach that you need to take from it. That's quite interesting because whenever sort of um, an awful lot of high-profile murder cases that come up, uh, very often it comes down to cell tower uh, evidence at some point that that you can say, well, they were within X number of miles on uh, between this cell tower and this cell tower. But but I wasn't aware that you know there were other factors in play that can distort um, that kind of data. Well, I think it depends. So again, it's kind of it's probabilistic. So it's kind of like okay, if the cell tower is pointing in this particular region, they're designed to cover that region. But if someone builds a six-story building right in front of the cell tower, well then, you know, it's a lot more difficult. Um, So um, going forward then, are telcos still um, very interested in using, in mining their own data towards civil uses, or do you think it will branch off into more commercial uses that uh, in terms of, say, network upgrades, that kind of thing? Um, it's a difficult question. Um, like I was saying, the kind of research was carried out a few years ago, so we didn't necessarily get directives from the telcos themselves in terms of like what were their interests. A lot of their interests were around kind of network optimizations of the infrastructure, how to deliver services better. Um, yeah, so again, like I said, kind of difficult question. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Lastly, this evening, I've uh, cornered Dr. Anna Piltiero Romayo. I believe I've got that correct. Almost. (laughs) And um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, machine learning at kind of an applied level, um, say, using robots. So thanks to sort of advances in things like... um, neural networks. We're getting to a stage where you you don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to robotics, which is what we're going to talk about specifically. Um, Are we getting to the stage where robots are starting to learn in the same way that animals and even humans? Well, not in the same way, but obviously uh, closer. So that's why, for example, deep learning uses neural networks. Um, So yeah, we're, we're getting closer, I guess. Uh, when we were talking earlier uh, about you know simple examples of how robots are progressing, uh, we were looking at um, sort of positive reinforcement in learning, and um, to take a, a very simple example of um, say a, a game of soccer where you have two competing teams um, of roughly equal values, if you will. How does that work from uh, a robot's point of view, starting? at a base level of knowledge of zero as to how the game is played. How does a robot go from being you know, completely inept to being competent on the field of play without any priming whatsoever? So, for example, as I explained in the talk today, uh, if we use reinforcement learning, what the robot is going to try to do or the agent is it is going to uh, learn by trial and error. So, a certain robot is going to be in a state and it's going to take an action, so say that uh, it's going to be in the middle of the field and it's going to think, should I go to, towards my goal or should I go to the other one? So it takes the action and if, if he goes to its own goal and it scores in his own goal, then that's, that's going to be um, an action that he doesn't want to perform. So therefore uh, he's going to learn that he shouldn't be doing that. 
as if he's doing the because the reward is going to be smaller and on the contrary case if he does the contrary then he's going to get a better reward so he's going to learn that he should be scoring in the other goal so those kind of things so basically what it does is it takes actions gets a feedback and learns uh, and of course these things can be much more efficient uh, if they're done at the group level instead of just um, you know, each robot having to, to learn the same thing individually. Is there, um, you know, is there a benefit to having a, a, a group effect like that with robots yet? You know, that at the extent that you know, uh, are we seeing robots are only capable of learning one at a time or are we seeing strategies where uh, robots are learning as groups? Uh, we are definitely seeing strategies where robots can learn as group, and not only that, but they can learn as an individual, but then they're going to coordinate as a team. So uh, as, as I was talking before, if you have multi-agent learning, the robots are going to take into account the other agents' uh, actions. So following the soccer robot soccer example, if I see that one teammate is going to the ball, I shouldn't go to the ball also because it doesn't make sense. Uh, so, so that kind of things are the things that you're going to learn also how to coordinate with your with your other peers. So, yeah, it may sound like we're we're breaking down a very instinctual thing, um, but it's you know the extent to which policy generation is driven by mathematics. Uh, I find is is fascinating that every decision is informed by a different policy. Um, to which extent are we finding that robots can learn sort of um, on the fly uh, about this kind of thing? I mean, are we seeing um, are we seeing things develop logically according to various policies and um, formula that we have out there, or do we have to generate new formulas in order to account for things that we're seeing out in the world at the moment? So, so basically, the way robots are learning. Are they fitting the models that we think they should? Are they performing as well as they should? Well, that, that depends on the environment that we're looking at. And sometimes in order for the, for the robots to learn, they don't need to know the, the environment. But in some other cases, in some other uh, techniques, let's say, they need to know the model of the world. So that depends a lot on, on the environment, I guess. So uh, are, are we getting to the stage where um, you know, we, we will see compelling automated games of soccer or you know, we will be able to uh, you know, j- just let, uh, let robots have at it on robot wars and, and not be worried about um, you know, the human element just yet? Are, are we getting to the stage where there, there almost is that level of sophistication now where you can take away the very basic human element and robots will learn on their own and will be able to replicate functions in a sort of... A, um, compelling way I think there are already a lot of tasks that that robots can take and replace humans to do but I think there's also a lot of uh, fear I would say that robots are going to take the world and I think that we are far from that obviously robots are much more intelligent than before and they are performing like for example driveless cars or other examples but I think we are far from robots being able to perform as a human being or to be let's say more autonomous. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.